Nunn is an international best-selling author of historical fiction whose latest book, The Last Reunion, tells the story of five women buddies who served in the Australian Auxiliary Service in the Second World War in Burma. They meet up at a New Year's Eve party after decades apart and a thrilling tale of desire, revenge and courage unfolds. This unit was a forgotten women's unit attached to the 14th Army and truly serving closer to the front than any other women's unit in the Second World War. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler. And in Binge Reading Today, Kate talks about inspiration and perspiration in the creative process, where each one fits, how fellow writers have encouraged her along the way, and how writing has a lot in common with running a marathon. Yeah, if you don't like the idea of running a marathon, maybe writing isn't for you. As usual, you'll find the show notes with links to Kate's books and media on the Joys of Binge Reading website. Visit us there, leave your comments and suggestions. We love to hear from you. But now, here's Kate. Hello there, Kate, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Now, you've got a really good backlist that we'll get into a little bit later, but the story that we're particularly focusing on today is the latest one that you've published, The Last Reunion. It's a dual timeline story split roughly between the present day and 1940s Burma, and it highlights the bravery of a little-known wartime women's unit in the Second World War. First of all, how did you come across this remarkable little slice of unknown history? Actually, it's uh, rather prosaic uh, on Google. I, um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I had never heard of them either until I started thinking about where I would set this novel. I knew I wanted to write about uh, a friendship between a much younger woman and an older woman uh, and a friendship that doesn't start off terribly well. And then I also wanted to write about netsuki, which are these little uh, toggles, Japanese toggles that men used to wear on the sash of their kimono to hang little pouches from where they might keep their tobacco or their writing implements. Uh, And they're actually now highly collectible. And years ago, I was working in London as a temp in an art agency, art gallery, and uh, I was working in the Far East and Asian department and came across them was just absolutely fascinated. So when I started to think about what I might write for my next book, I knew that I had that in the back of my head and it was something I always wanted to to write about somehow and include in a novel. And then I started to think about where, how I could incorporate that. And I, I, for a while, I thought maybe I should set it in Japan in the kind of 17th century. And then I just, I thought, well, what about in a time of war? And um, the, the Second World War has been covered quite a lot in terms of the war in Europe, but not so much um, the war in Asia and the Far East. And so that's where I started to, to do some research. And uh, I happened to click on a link that talked about the WASBs, the Women's Auxiliary Service Burma. And there's very little information about them. I found one published diaries, which was invaluable in giving me a lot of detail. 
and then a couple of small pamphlets. And, and the Imperial War Museum site has some recorded oral histories of these women and, and what they got up to. They were English and Australian women mainly who had some experience of living in India. And they drove mobile canteens and made endless cups of tea and sandwiches and served served the men out on the front line who were, you know, would have been days or weeks from, from anywhere where they might have been able to buy a packet of cigarettes or some writing paper and a pen, that kind of thing. And they were often, you know, that little bit of comfort in a really awful situation. Uh, and I knew straight away that, and, and they were they were incredibly courageous women. They were mentioned in dispatches for their bravery, and they actually were the um, only women served the, the closer they served the closest to the front line of any women's service in the Second World War. And yet, so little is, is known about them. So I knew immediately then that I had the, the setting for my story. Yes, and although serving tea out of a canteen, it could sound remarkably kind of sort of just normal, but in fact, the conditions under which they worked were just absolutely diabolical, weren't they? They were. They had to deal with monsoons and the roads being washed away and uh, bridges being washed away. They they operated under gu- enemy gunfire with soldiers, you know, in the trees above them. All that kind of thing really, yeah, really added to, to the danger and the hardship. Yeah. Perhaps we ought to clarify that you're currently living in Australia. And so a lot of the readers of this book will be Australian women. But even for the wider international audience, the Asian uh, war is becoming, there's more and more books being written about that aspect of the Second World War as well as the European war, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I think so. Look, it's an area that is is endlessly fascinating. And I think now, particularly, women's stories during the war are starting to be told. And that's really interesting. Yes, you know, I was thinking about the timing of your book, because the present day part is it's probably the early 2000s, isn't it? And But it's coming to the point where living survivors of that Second World War, are, it's more and more difficult. If you tried to set it in 2021 now, they would have to be kind of 100 years old or more to still be alive. So it's kind of going to be a, a little subgenre, which you're going to have to continue to set your contemporary thing in the late 90s or early 2000s to even have any credibility, aren't you? Yes, yes, really to make that work. I was lucky enough to speak to one surviving WASB, Elsa Hatfield, who lives in Melbourne and is has absolutely incredible memories of her time serving in the WASBs. And before that, she was a, a Japanese prisoner of war. So that was really quite extraordinary and something I hadn't expected to be able to do. That's amazing. How did she sort of get out of being a Japanese prisoner of war to get into service? I think at the very beginning of the war, she was interned and then she was sent on a ship back to Australia, I think. Okay, yeah. And then she volunteered for, for the Wasbies. Sure. Now, the whole area of Second World War has become incredibly popular in the last decade or so, perhaps even longer. I mean, once upon a time, authors could hardly get publishing houses interested in this period, but it's become incredibly interesting. This is your fourth historical, I think, and not all of them are Second World War, but what attracts you to historic fiction? I think the fact that long ago secrets can still resonate in the past and and that, you know, history is there in the objects we handle. Just really delving into something in the past and doing all the research I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Now, do you always have a kind of real life spark of some sort that acts as the 
catalyst for your imagination or sometimes is it just purely your own imagination that generates the story? For the last reunion, I was reading the published diary of a Wasby and in one small couple of sentences, she mentions that uh, she found herself alone in a room with a soldier and she became very frightened and she had to really do some fast talking to get her way out of it. And that when she told her friends afterwards, they didn't take her seriously and they laughed at her and she was actually really frightened. And that was the spark for me as to the, the one of the threads in the last reunion. And I thought, well, what if it hadn't turned out as well? Which, yeah. as we know, can ab- absolutely happen and does happen. Mm. Yeah. And I would imagine in real life that that happened yes. more often than we might want to imagine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I thought this was a lovely quote. I think I saw it either in an interview you did or on your website. You say that stories circulate in the ether and if you are receptive, they will tap you on the shoulder and start whispering in your (laughs) ear. (laughs) Absolutely gorgeous. I wonder if you could explain to us how you've experienced that particular thing. That really happened for me the first time with The Botanist's Daughter, which was my first historical novel. I was walking in the Botanic Gardens in Sydney with my young daughter, who was about nearly five then. And we were looking for fairies, as you do. And we'd had a picnic and it was a a nice day out for us before she started school. And it was a hot, sultry day. And we were just wandering around and we went up to the Rose Garden, which I love, and and the Herb Garden, which is nearby. And in that garden is a, I've forgotten the word now, a big bronze sculpture and it has the a a relief of herbs all the way around it different herbs and I put my hand on the bronze and it was really warm from the sun and immediately I could see in my mind's eye a young girl in a walled garden with a similar sculpture in England somewhere and I then I wandered around the rest of the day in a bit of a daze because I knew I had there was there was a story somewhere there I just had to spend some time thinking about it So that really happened there. And then I think for my other books, it's been more of a process of of discovery and and not one absolute moment. But I have did experience a couple of days ago as I was driving past somewhere and and there was something that just was like a snap snap of the fingers. And so there might be another idea brewing, I think. Oh, that's fantastic. Look, you started out actually, I think, the first two books you did were romances. Was that right? Yes, yes. I started off by writing what I loved to read. And when I was growing up, I really enjoyed the books of Jilly Cooper. And I wanted to write a bit of a romp uh, and a bit of a lovely rural romp. And uh, rural romance was doing very well at the time. And I had worked as a magazine journalist on a, a wine magazine. And so, and done quite a bit of traveling in wine regions as a part of that. And I thought, well, you know, what better place to set a really nice story than in a wine region? And yes, that's 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 where I started with those two. So you've got Rosie's Vintage and I think Angel's Share, and they're both set in this imaginary town and wine country. It's probably in Victoria, is it? Actually, I imagined it was somewhere like the Hunter Valley, but smaller. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Purely because that was an area that I knew better than any others. Yes, that's in New South Wales for yeah. those who might not be uh, Australian listening. Have you got any more of those coming? I mean, I really enjoyed Rosie's Vintage as one that I read. I thought it was great. Unfortunately not. I, I think I've definitely now become known as a writer of historical fiction and yeah. uh, I'm tending to write more historical mysteries. I think that's the area that I'm going in. And really that's because I enjoy the challenge 
they are a bit more complex and there is a lot more research involved. Yeah, I enjoy writing those kind of stories now. I think the thing that those two genres have in common, the romance and the historicals, is that you bring to them a really warm feeling. Somebody reviewed one of your romances saying that it was a warm, feel-good love story. And even with the last reunion, with all the horrible stuff that they face, it's not depressing or or sort of dragging you down. It, it leaves you with some feeling of inspiration and hope. And I get the feeling that that's something you probably really deliberately aim for. Would that be right? Yes, yes. And with The Last Reunion, I also really wanted to write about female friendship and female friendship in the time of war. There's been a lot written about men's mateship, but very little about female friendship. And it's not perfect friendship. And, you know, they do rub each other up the wrong way sometimes, but they really have each other's backs. And that was um, an aspect of, of kind of female relationships that I wanted to focus on. So often women are pitted against each other and have to take each other down. And that seems to me so unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. You've got a great spread of international editions. And I wondered if you'd noticed any difference in the way that different nationalities really respond to your stories. Do you get different feedback from different countries? Mostly people tend to give me feedback if they like it, which is really nice. And um, the feedback there has been kind of similar. The Bodner's Daughter really resonated with Italian readers for some reason, and I'm not entirely sure why. So it was a it was a top 10 bestseller there when it came out, which was lovely. And my Italian publisher has taken on my subsequent books as a result of that as well, and they've done quite well. Yeah, I, I look, I think if you're telling a good story, it doesn't matter where it's set or where your reader might be from they can still find things in in that to identify with. Yeah, yeah. Just turning perhaps from the specific books to your wider career, tell us about your life before you became a full-time writer and how has that fed into what you're doing now? I started off working in book publishing as an editor for a very brief few years and then ironically I wanted to write more and so I moved into magazines as a feature writer and it really honed my ability to tell a story in a very succinct way and to get to the heart of an issue. It also has given me a great appreciation of deadlines I hate to miss a deadline, so that keeps me focused. And it just taught me the, you know, the the nuts and bolts of writing and the experience of sitting at a blank page and having to get a story out. What I did have to learn, though, when I first started writing fiction was how to tell a story in a really compelling way. Fiction is is kind of different to uh, nonfiction in that in that way. In, in kind of the features that I was writing, it was it was just a different skill that I had to learn. And I honestly, I didn't know how much I didn't know when I started, which is probably not a bad thing because if I'd known how hard it was, I might not have continued. But it's I think it's been about six or seven years. And I I when I first started writing fiction, I was working as a freelance editor and writer as well, and I combined the two. And now I write full time. Lucky enough to write full-time. And I think I'm constantly learning, constantly learning how to be a better writer, how to express myself in a better way, how to craft a novel in a better way. And that's what keeps me really interested. 
How have you done that? Have you attended actual workshops or just really closely read other people's work? Yes, I have done workshops. I've done online workshops and I still do some. I've done in-person ones that might be um, attached to a writer's festival or something like that. And I've always found them incredibly useful. I talk to other writers about their process. I listen to a lot of writing podcasts. I'm <laughs> fascinated by them, uh, by other writers and how, what their process is like. And, and every writer does things slightly differently and finds things that work for them that, you know, might work for you, but might, you know, might you don't have to follow. And then I've read quite a few books on the craft. One of my favourite ones, and I always recommend this if you are thinking about wanting to write fiction, is uh, Writing 21st Century Fiction by Donald J. Maas. And it's utterly brilliant. And I, I read, read that at least once a year and still find things that I can use to improve my manuscript. Great, yeah, yeah. And what sort of process do you adopt then? How, how do you structure your writing day? I try and write during school hours. I've got two daughters who are still at school. So once I've dropped them off or they've gone off to school, I have a coffee and then I sit down and I give myself, usually if I'm in the middle of a a first draft, a word count for the day. And I don't let myself stop until I've reached that. Sometimes it might take me all day. Sometimes it might take me, you know, three hours. It just depends on where I'm at. And I, what happens then is often I'll have to leave and go and get in the car and pick up my daughters from school and my mind will be churning over with the story. So I'll come back from that trip with all sorts of other ideas that I will then work on the next day. And I try and think about the, the story I'm in the middle of when I, before I go to sleep at night. And then when I wake up in the morning before I'm really awake, when I'm half asleep, I'm still thinking about what might happen and and who these characters are and getting to know the characters. So although I might not always be sitting at my desk for, you know, eight hours a day, it's constantly on my mind. And do you have the same word count every day or different word counts depending on where you're at in the story? No, I try and write the same number of words every day. If I'm really behind, I'll try and up that word count. For the last reunion, actually, I wrote 50,000 words of it during NaNoWriMo last year, which is in November, which is National Novel Writers Month. I think it was November. Mm. It might be October, I can't remember. And that was an effort for me because I don't write fast, particularly fast compared to some writers. Uh, And I think it it worked out to be about 1,500 words a day. And that was quite a lot, you know, 30 days in a row. But it really helped push the the first draft of the story out. So um, I'm quite grateful that I did that. And did it have a permanent effect in terms of your continued production after you stopped NaNoWriMo? Yes, I think it did. I used that to finish um, the draft. I'd already got probably about 30,000 words before I started NaNoWriMo. So it's not strictly, you're supposed to start a new project in NaNoWriMo, but I didn't. But it, yes, it, it definitely helped. And I think for me, writing is a bit like exercise. If you do it regularly enough, the words come more easily. Definitely. Yeah. Whereas if, if you haven't written for a few weeks, it's a bit like the first time you go for a run after a break. You're like, oh, this is really uncomfortable. How, how did I ever do this? But you soon yeah. get back into the rhythm. Look, a perennial question that I do like to ask everyone is, is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you would see as the secret of your success? Not giving up, not giving in to that little voice on your shoulder that tells you you're wasting your time or it's all, you know, an absolute load of rubbish and 
who are you to think you can write a novel? You just have to tuck that voice away and plough on regardless. And interestingly, when I was writing Roses Vintage, I was also training for a marathon, my first and only and ever marathon. But there was a real sort of, I could appreciate the, the, the two disciplines that you don't look too far ahead. You just do what you've got to do that day or that workout. You don't worry about the future. So you go, just today, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write 500 words. So I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write a thousand words. That's all I'm going to do. Or I'm going to write one scene. And if you do that every day, it really does add up. And before you know it, you've got something that you can work with. Yes, I think that's probably the very best advice for anybody listening who who is trying to write. Uh, It's amazing to me. It's a bit like, you know, I was a journalist once and whenever you interviewed a woman, even if she was the most beautiful model, they always wanted to tell you about the things that were wrong with themselves. (laughs) We women seem to have this inner voice that is so critical often. And I think even the best writers doubt their own ability, don't they? And, And to have to overcome that little voice is something that absolutely everybody has to do. Yes, yes. And it really is a bit of a roller coaster. There are times when it's all going well and you think it's fantastic and you've got this great idea. And then there are other times it might be the very next day where you're down in the doldrums and, and wondering why you're bothering. So you just have to persevere. You have to be quite bloody minded about it, I think, and just keep going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the transition from writing for magazines to actual fiction, was that any, was there any kind of epiphany moment there where you wanted to write the longer form or did something happen that pushed you in that direction? Mm, a couple of things happened. A woman I knew, a friend of mine, uh, another school mother, came up in the, up to me in the playground one day and said, I've written a book and, and I've, got a, I've got an agent. And I was like, I was, I was outwardly really happy for her, but inside I was going, oh, my God, that was my dream. <laughs> and, and it was a kind of a case of now or never. There was that and then the fact that I had about a six-week gap between freelance projects and instead of casting around and looking for something to fill that, I, I was lucky enough to go, you know what, I'm just going to sit and see if I can write some fiction. I'd written a few short stories and actually when I look back at it, I'd always written tiny little bits and pieces of fiction throughout my my life, right from the age of eight. But this was when I, I was like, no, I'm actually going to try and write a full-length book. So it was it was the combination of those two things, I think, that made me think, you know, it's now or never. And if somebody else can do it, well, why can't you? You know, what are you waiting for? And has that person continued with their writing? Yes, they have. Yes, yes. So that's good. Yes. It's fantastic. So you've got a, a local little writers club there. <laughs> the, one of the most fantastic things that I have learned from becoming a writer is the sense of collegiality. Other writers are really incredibly generous. They all know how hard it is to to actually put your work out there and to persevere and finish something. And, you know, I'd say 99% of the time I've found other writers to be incredibly supportive and generous and lovely. And uh, that's been an absolute bonus that I hadn't expected. Actually, I mean, I'm happy to mention on air that I heard of your work through Rachel Treasure, who has also been on the podcast. But uh, we're getting to the point now where I'm going to ask you about your taste as a reader. And you were one of the people that Rachel mentioned and recommended as writers that she loves to read. So that very much fits into what you're saying. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Turning to that topic of your own taste in reading, and because this is binge reading, we tend to focus more on the 
books that we choose to go to for entertainment or for escapism, but anything that you like to read. Tell us about your your taste in reading. I do read quite widely, I think. I have very broad tastes and I love an absolute page turner more than anything. Those were the books that gave me such comfort in my teenage years. I really enjoy crime. So I love the books of Devlin McTiernan. I've recently discovered Tana French and I'm just ripping through her backlist at the moment. She she writes with such incredible detail and yet a really compelling plot line. So I'm very, very much loving her books. I'm just trying to think of the other crime novels that I really like, Jane Harper. And there's some fantastic Australian crime writers emerging at the moment, which has been brilliant to see. Yeah, I think the Australian publishing scene is is really very lively and interesting at the moment. I mean, I notice that myself. Yes, and they're, they're you know they're getting international recognition, which is fantastic. Um, Megan Golden is another Australian writer that is doing really well in the US, and I think her books are brilliant. Oh, that's one I haven't heard mm-hmm. of, so that's interesting. Yeah. And I know that going back a few years, you you were a great fan of Jilly Cooper's, as you've already mentioned, when you were a teenager. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. I went to boarding school and parts of that were really a bit grim. And I read a lot of very grim dystopian fiction when I was there. But then Jilly Cooper saved me. Just being able to escape into riders or rivals or her early books all had women's names. There was Bella and Prudence and Emily and Imogen. And I honestly, my sister and I could quote each other the lines from them and we regularly used to. And they, yeah, I I read them so often they were falling apart. Oh, that's gorgeous. Look, we are starting to come to the end of our time together. So circling around and looking back down the tunnel of time, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, what would you change, if anything? Uh, I would start sooner, I think. I absolutely love writing and being able to do it and help support my family doing so. There's really nothing better. I would I would just start sooner. Ah, that's fantastic. Look, so you mentioned that you've just maybe had a little inspirational idea in the last week or so, but what is next for Kate as writer? What does your next 12 months look like in terms of the projects you've got going? I'm just coming to the end of a second draft of a book that I hope will be published next year. I don't know yet. And it is more of a crime mystery, but with a historical fiction element. And so I hope to get a publishing offer for that and then start working in the edits for that interspersed with promoting The Last Reunion and beginning to have an idea of the following book. I think writers who produce a book a year and a lot of commercial writers, that's their schedule, often working on three books at once throughout a year. But you might work on one book for a couple of months and then finish doing that and then work work on the the next project for a couple of months. But you kind of juggle three projects in any one year. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that historical one you're doing, is that another dual timeline where you have a contemporary? Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, definitely, yeah. And and again, a kind of 1950s setting, late 1940s, early 1950s. That'll be the um, the third book I've written in that kind of era, and I'm really finding it it suits me. I enjoy enjoy that. Marvellous. Look, I imagine that you do enjoy hearing from your readers. Possibly the promotion of The Last Reunion has been a bit disrupted by the pandemic that we've all been facing. But how do you enjoy hearing from readers and where can you find them online? Where can they find you online? 
I am on Facebook at Kate Nunn Author and often readers send me messages there. And I am on Instagram as Kate Nunn 2, number two, which I, that's my kind of favourite social media channel. And I am on Twitter as well. I don't spend a lot of time on there. Yes. And then I have a website, katenunn.com, with a newsletter, which you can sign up for, although I am afraid I don't get around to sending it out very often. But it means I won't bother you very often. Yeah, probably as a bonus. Um, Look, that's great. And and we will put links to all of those sites in the in the show notes that we run with each episode. So they're there as green content for even more on the, on online once we've got this posted. So look, Kate, it's been great talking today. Thank you so, so much. And we'll look for your coming books with a great deal of interest. Oh, super. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's lovely to talk to you. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.